Father, we thank you for this sweet opportunity to be able to gather together as your people to give you praise and worship and honor that you alone are rightly due. God, we are grateful to be able to gather together today. Uh, so many of us have come from so many different places. Uh, so many of us have come from uh, different walks of life this week, different challenges, different uh, struggles and trials, uh, even different joys and celebrations. But God, you have brought us together to bring praise to you and to encourage one another. God, it is a gift for us to be able to gather together for worship. Father, where there was once uh, enmity and strife between us and yourself, you have brought about peace, and you now call us friends in Christ. God, that is good news for us today. If we have forgotten that good news this week, Lord, we pray and ask you that you would so graciously remind us that we have friendship with God where there was once nothing but enmity and strife. That friendship has been given to us not by our own merits and not by our own strengths, not by our own abilities or capabilities, but God, simply by the work of Christ. That work was costly, that work was cosmic in nature, and that work, praise God, was finished. Father, we are grateful to be able to gather together to hear your word read and preached, that we would be uh, strengthened and encouraged, that our faith would be strengthened so that we would continue to look upon Christ. Father, we are grateful to be able to sing songs together, some old and some new, to encourage one another on this pilgrim's journey to our heavenly country with Christ. Father, we are grateful to be able to gather together, to pray together as a church as we look upwards and forward to the city that we will enter into, the city that King Jesus welcomes us by faith alone through his grace. Father, we are grateful this morning for this ordinary, normal, regular act of gathering for worship. Father, many of us this week, we have struggled with sin. Lord, we recognize and understand that on this side of eternity, sin, uh, there is still a remnant of sin that your church deals with, struggles with, fights against, and sometimes gives in to. Father, we ask and pray uh, and plead uh, not for, uh, we, we plead only the mercy that is given to us by Christ. Father, we ask and pray that you would wash us clean of all unrighteousness. And we are grateful that you have promised that you will do just that. Father, we pray that if there is sin in our hearts and sin in our lives, uh, whether through words or actions, Father, we pray that you would quickly lead us to confess that sin to you and to those whom we may have sinned against, that we may be cleansed of all unrighteousness and walk in the newness of life that you have raised us to. Father, we are grateful that when we have sinned, we need not wonder if you have yanked your love away from us. We are grateful for the reminder and the assurance that we have that those who are in Christ will never be plucked out of the firm grip of Christ. We may deal with sin for a while, but there is coming a day, Lord, when you will put an end to all of our sin, all of our suffering, all of our trials, and all of our struggles. We long for that day to come. 
And whether you tarry or uh, we do not see that day in our lifetime, Father, we will look to you. We will trust in you alone. And we will place all of our faith and trust in Christ and rest in him because he has promised that he will complete the work that he has begun. God, we, God, we rest in him today. We rest in his promises. And Father, not only does our church rest in the promises of Christ, but Father, we think of healthy, biblical, gospel-loving, Jesus-centered churches all around Washington County. Father, we pray for Bridge of Life Church as they meet just down the street. God, we pray that you would bless uh, Pastor Justin, that you would bless the elders of Bridge of Life, that you would bless the members of Bridge of Life, and that you would bless your word being proclaimed there uh, now. Father, we pray not only for the work that is being done here at home, in our neighborhoods, in our state, and in our country. Father, we pray for the work that is being done all around the world. Father, we pray for, uh, we think of our missionary families all around South Asia. God, they have embarked upon a difficult task. They have embarked upon a task that uh, is costly, both in terms of uh, emotions and physical but difficult financially, difficult in terms of encouragement. Father, we pray that even though we are here in America, that we would be able to encourage and strengthen them from afar. Father, we pray that the gospel would boldly be proclaimed, that people would hear the good news of Jesus, maybe they've never, uh, a Jesus whom they have never heard before. And Father, that they would quickly come to faith and repentance. Father, we pray that you would bless these missionaries, bless the work of their hands, uh, bless the proclamation of their tongues, bless the building of the church uh, all around the globe. God, we pray that as we open up your word this morning and as we uh, hear your word read and preached, Father, we ask and pray that you would lead us uh, to have a greater, ever-deepening affection for your son. Lord, that we would see Christ in the scriptures and see that our lives are hidden with him, that he himself is our life, that he himself is the great prize of our life, and that he himself is the great reward that we get to experience now and will enjoy forevermore in your presence. Until that day come, comes, Lord, we ask and pray that you would lead us by your spirit through your word, with your people, to delight in your son forevermore. We ask this, Lord, in his beautiful and matchless name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, good morning and welcome. You may have a seat. My name is uh, Pastor Chris Gomes. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, my name is not Pastor Chris Gomes, excuse me. My name is Chris Gomes. I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. I'm so uh, glad and grateful to uh, welcome you to our gathering this morning. Uh, while I welcome uh, all of you, I'm sad to say goodbye to some of you because this is the part of our service where we dismiss the children uh, to their classrooms. So Gray Station, uh, uh, from uh, ages 6 to 5th grade, you'll be exiting to my right, your left, and Blue Station, ages 3 to 5, you will be exiting to your right, which is my left. In Gray Station this morning, you'll see in your loop that our children are asking the question, why must the Redeemer truly be truly God? They're asking the question, why must the Redeemer be truly God? And maybe that's a question that some of you have not asked. Well, spoiler alert, the answer, that because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. 
That's a good question to ask ourselves and of uh, the kids in our grace station this morning. We gathered this morning to celebrate the good news that we have received because our Redeemer came truly as God. Now, if you're, if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, if you're new to Hagerstown Church, uh, we are so glad that you are with us today. Uh, normally, we uh, preach expositionally through the scriptures. Uh, and we're going to continue to do just that. If you're wondering what expositional means, it means that we take the text, we take the meaning of the text, and let the meaning of the text drive the meaning of our sermon. So rather than uh, importing our uh, positions and beliefs onto the text, we want to draw from the text what the text actually says and then submit to God's word because it is just that. We have been uh, working through the beautiful letter of the letter to the Hebrews, but we're uh, taking a break from that temporarily and jumping back into our series, How to Destroy a Church. Now, several months ago, the American entertainment industry, the news media, and social media in general went into a complete frenzy. He was understood to uh, 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 win the coveted award of best actor. He was nominated. Rumors were swirling that he would win the award. But then suddenly, something happened that caused the culture at large, the news media, and the internet as a whole to go into a complete frenzy because we now suddenly had to deal with not only the victory that he secured of being uh, the best actor, but now we had to deal with this episode of anger that was publicized on television. When his wife was uh, the unfortunate recipient of an uh, inappropriate joke, the husband, the soon-to-be winner of uh, the Best Actor Award, stood up, struck the presenter, sat back down, and proceeded to yell obscenities uh, and unleashed his anger in his words. The culture then had to ask this question, what are we to do with anger? Was he in the wrong for striking the presenter for attacking his wife verbally? Was he in the right for defending his wife against inappropriate jokes? What do you do with this clear and present and awkwardly televised episode of anger? Well, about a week later, the news died down and uh, everybody forgot about what happened. But maybe you can remember an episode of anger. If you can't, let me ask you just a series of questions. I think these questions would be helpful for you to consider, uh, not just this morning, but throughout the week, in your life groups, in your marriages. Here are the questions. What is your most recent episode of anger? What have people said to you about your anger? What has been your worst, most destructive episode of anger? What situations provoke your anger, and how often do you feel this anger? Who are the targets of your anger? Maybe your parents, your siblings, your spouse, or your children? And what have been the consequences of your anger? How have you tried to deal with your anger, if you have tried to deal with your anger? In your efforts to deal with your anger, what has worked and what has not worked? Two more questions. Do you think you can change? And finally, 
do you have a plan for change? Brothers and sisters, this morning, we are going to consider the subject of anger in the church. Every aspect of our lives will inevitably face the problem of anger, whether our own or the anger of others. You will inevitably face the problem of anger in your marriage, with your children, in the workplace, with your family, with your neighbors, at the store, in your car. And if you stick around long enough, you will at some point face anger in the church. Christians are not immune from the sinful expressions of anger. And the Bible just happens to say a lot to the church about our anger. Unmet expectations, frustrated desires, moral offenses, and sin in all its various forms and expressions can and will trigger our anger even in the church. Our grumbling, complaining, irritability, and outbursts of anger all have profound impacts on our precious relationships. Anger in our marriage directly threatens the long-term health of our marriage. Anger at home is then learned by our children, thereby perpetuating anger in their lives and their relationships that they will have in the future. Anger in the church can arise from countless things, and if left unchecked, anger can and will lead to immediate and generational damage. When Paul listed the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, more than half of the items that he listed describes some aspect of interpersonal conflict that's bred in the fertile soil of unchecked anger. Enmities, strife, jealousy. He explicitly then says fits or outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. It's commonplace to say, uh, almost uh, just tongue-in-cheek, that churches split over the color of the carpet. But brothers and sisters, churches do not split over the color of the carpet. Churches split because enmities, strife, jealousy, fits and outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension, factions, and envying have been allowed to let their roots grow deep into the hearts of church members. And it just so happens that the changing of the color of the carpet allows us to unbottle everything that's been inside and spew outward. So, this morning, we are going to consider what the Lord has said about anger and how his church ought to respond when we inevitably experience anger. There's three observations that we're going to consider pertaining to our anger. Number one, if you're taking notes... This is a great opportunity for you to use one of those uh, free pens that are available, probably the best resource that I can point to you this morning. Number one, the warnings of our anger. Number two, the heart of our anger. Number three, the way out of our anger. So the warnings against our anger, the heart of our anger, and finally the way out of our anger if you search the term anger or wrath in your Bible apps, you can do it right now if you want. Just stay off of social media and Amazon while uh, the word is being read to you. Search the uh, term anger or wrath in your Bible apps and you will immediately see that the, uh, that the vast majority of the references to anger in the scriptures refers to God's anger. 
And when you read those various passages, a theme will immediately stand out. It would appear that God has revealed in his word that his anger is provoked by and is specifically against human sin and wickedness. God is not randomly angry. I remember several years ago, my freshman semester English class in college. So my freshman uh, semester in college, in my English class, we were studying American literature, and there was a whole host of various pieces of American literature that we would read through uh, that semester. I had just become a Christian the summer before, and so I was a brand new baby Christian on a college campus in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and here I am in my English class, and lo and behold, I am shocked to see probably the most provocative piece of literature that will be read in our English class. Some of you may know where I'm going with this. So what was this provocative piece of American literature that we would read? It was a Christian sermon. What a provocative thing. A Christian sermon in a public classroom. Now, it's not only any sermon, but it is most likely the most well-known and best, uh, most well-known piece of, uh, the most well-known sermon ever produced in America. I'm trying to give you some hints, maybe get the gears spinning. Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a provocative piece of literature to read, with a provocative subject to delve into, and by far the most provocative sermon title I've ever heard in my life as a new Christian. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, long story short, the prevailing consensus in my English class was that God, of the, the, the God of the Bible, the God of Jonathan Edwards' uh, most well-known sermon, was a God that was violent, petty, bitter, jealous, and angry. And what was interesting was, the judgments made against the God of Jonathan Edwards' sermon those judgments were made by a group of freshman students in college out of anger. They were angry that God could be like this. Now, to cut my English class some slack, because they, like me, most likely misunderstood Jonathan Edwards' sermon, we all misunderstood the subject of God's anger. They needed to learn, just like me, what Moses learned in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Moses learned that the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That really was the point of Edwards' sermon. If you get a chance, I encourage you to read that. I'd be happy to talk to you about his sermon. Moses learned that God... Is, a merciful, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Bible has more to say about God's anger. Isaiah repeatedly says that when God looks at evil, his anger does not turn away. In Romans, Paul mentions God's anger and its effects more than 50 times, beginning with, in chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There's numerous other passages, but for the sake of time, we'll continue. Uh, the famous uh, late biblical counselor, 
David Powelson, he said something very helpful. And I'll just quote him at length here. That God is angry tells us something very important. Anger can be utterly right, good, appropriate, beautiful, the only fair response to something evil, and the loving response on behalf of evil's victims. God, of course, is also the most loving person in the Bible, and the Son of God expresses the fullness of his love. But we often fail to see that God's anger and love are entirely consistent with each other as different expressions of his goodness and glory. The two work together. Jesus burned with anger against the wrongs he met within his journey through human life, as truly as he melted with pity at the sight of the world's misery. And it was out of these two emotions that his actual mercy proceeded. You cannot understand God's love if you do not understand his anger. Because he loves, he's angry at what harms. That's what Edwards was getting at. That's what we fail to understand in my freshman English class. God's holy anger and his righteous human anger, they are not the problem. In fact, righteous anger is an excellent and constructive thing. In response to evil, injustice, moral wrongs, and wickedness, anger is a natural and appropriate response. But before we trust ourselves too much, we must remember that as sinful human beings in a fallen world, our human anger is so disordered that James can make a sweeping statement where he tells his readers and listeners, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Even righteously aroused anger easily and quickly can degenerate into self-righteousness, gossip, self-pity, vengeance, cynicism, and merciless accusation. Pallison, he continued, he said, When angry, the human heart is laid out on the table with nowhere to hide. The behaviors are, are often plain to all. The tone of voice, the cutting edge in the words, the glitter in the eyes, the mask of disgust. Its presence is easy to see. Grumbling, whining, hostility, judgmentalism, bitterness, rancor, negativism, hatred, bickering, disgruntlement, manipulation, coercion. Brothers and sisters, we have all been there and we have all done that. When I consider my own experiences with anger, I quickly realize that I am much more of a cautionary tale than I would like to think of myself. So where do we begin when we think about anger? What exactly is anger? We know it when we see it. We know it when we feel it. Others know it when they see it in us, perhaps even before we see it in ourselves. There's a definition that I have found very helpful. Uh, Robert Jones, in his book, Uprooting Anger, probably one of the best resources that I've read. Uh, additionally, uh, David Powelson's book, Good and Angry. If you're going to read books on this subject, if you understand you have a problem with anger, uh, or maybe your spouse has been trying to convince you you have a problem with anger, Robert Jones's book, Uprooting Anger, and David Powelson's book, Good and Angry. Very helpful places to start. 
Jones's definition has been so personally helpful to me, I believe it will be personally helpful to you. He defines anger like this. Anger is the active, moral, and whole person response and judgment against a perceived wrong or injustice. Anger is the active, moral, and whole person response and judgment against a perceived wrong or injustice. And simply, that's the main idea that we're considering this morning. What is anger? Anger is an active response. It is not exclusively just an emotion we feel when we're slightly uh, irritated. It's, it's not just, it's something that we do. It's not just something that we possess. It's not just exclusively an emotion. It, you can feel anger. That's absolutely true. But anger primarily is an active response. It's a response that is both to something and against something. When somebody wishes you happy birthday and gives you a card on time, very thoughtfully, they're very kind, you typically don't, you typically don't respond to them with anger. And if you do, that's a sign of a problem. <laughs> but anger is a response to something and against something. And it involves the whole person. Scripture understands anger to be complex. Scripture understands that anger comprises your mind. It affects your entire thought life. When you are angry with your spouse, those sweet vows that you took so long ago very quickly fades from your memory. And all you can think about is the way that they have offended you. Anger comprises your mind. It affects your entire thought life. It also comprises your body. There are literally several physiological effects from anger. When you are on 81 and you see that the traffic has stopped because there is a car accident so far ahead of you and all you see is a sea of solid red taillights. And when you see in your rearview mirror that somebody just wants to go ahead and take that next exit and they veer off into the shoulder that is specifically reserved for emergency vehicles, what do you feel? I might be the only one that feels this. Physically, I respond. My grip on my steering wheel gets tighter. The hair on my arms raise. My neck tightens. My stomach churns. My ears get hot. And suddenly, I want to demonstrate my brand of justice. How? By veering a little bit to the right to be able to prevent them and embarrass them. They are in the wrong. That vehicle is only for the heroes to go save that person ahead. Anger comprises the body. Anger comprises also the entire spectrum of our emotions. Anger affects the whole person and encompasses our whole package of beliefs, feelings, actions, desires. I believe that person is wrong to get onto the shoulder. I feel angry and I feel that they are committing an injustice. I will respond in my actions and I desire that justice be enacted against them. Anger is a response against something. For anger to appear, it must be aroused. Anger is the result of some sort of provocation. Something provokes your anger. And when our anger is provoked, we respond in various ways against whatever has provoked our anger. Finally, anger is a judgment against a perceived wrong or injustice. Anger is a judgment 
that we make a moral judgment against something we perceive to be a moral wrong or injustice. All of the moral judgments we make arise from our personal perceptions of what is right and what is wrong. So for example, when your children are being very loud in the living room and you have just come home from work and you just want some peace and quiet and you snap out of your irritability and your anger and you erupt in an outburst of anger against your child, it's very possible that you have perceived that your children were wrong to interrupt your moment of peace. Can't they just understand that you have worked so hard for them? How dare they come and interrupt your moment of peace? You perceive a wrong or injustice, and anger is a judgment against that. Now, our first observation, the warnings against our anger. Look with me in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. You will likely forget every sermon I will ever preach as one of your pastors. You will likely forget Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I do not believe you will forget this sermon. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, we read a portion of the greatest sermon ever preached. The Lord Jesus himself saying, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. The Pharisees, in Jesus' day, they understood in the narrowest sense that the law specifically denounced and condemned murder. But in his sermon, Jesus clarified and corrected the misunderstandings and misinterpretations of the Pharisees. Jesus extended the command in the law to the root of all murders, anger. In our hearts, when we experience a sense of resentment and anger against another image bearer, we naturally weaponize it to commit murder in our hearts and brothers and sisters, such anger is a violation of man being made in the image of God. The further you escalate your anger against another, the further the judgment, Jesus says, is escalated. So when you hear Jesus' words here, let me ask you, do you agree with him? Do you agree with the Lord? That's another good question for you to ponder throughout this week. Do I agree with the Lord Jesus Christ? He, Jesus continued his warnings. He, he continued instructing his followers to do what? To be reconciled quickly if one is angry against another. Look at verses 23 to 26. Jesus said, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In our everyday anger, when we are angry against 
another, whether it's our spouse, our children, uh, fellow members of the church. When we are in the midst of our impassioned anger, the last thing that we want to do is what Jesus himself said right here. The last thing we want to do is admit our own faults, seek reconciliation, and pursue biblical peacemaking and forgiveness. When we are angry, we almost always will put the best possible spin on ourselves and the worst possible spin on the other. Our natural sinful inclination is to withdraw and to mentally marinate in our anger, replaying the offense in our mind, taking apart all of those key moments, and then we rehearse expertly how we can cut down our offender. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus, he intends for you to address your anger quickly and to come to reconciliation without delay. You may need a little time to process the offense that's been done against you, how you can consider uh, how you uh, should speak with kindness. You may need some time to consider how you can practice biblical peacemaking and forgiveness. You may even need a little bit of time to consider how you can replace the desires of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. But we must remember that the Lord intends for you to quickly reconcile. So will you agree with him today? One biblical counselor said that I found so helpful. All sin is delusional and unreasonable. None of it makes sense. But anger specializes in this madness. Anger sees others, but not itself. Like delusional people, those who are angry are always the last to know, if indeed they ever know. Anger can see the wrongs of others, but not its own. By its very nature, anger says, you are wrong and I am right. And it is absolutely certain in its judgment. It never wavers in its self-confidence. Uh, you may not know this about me, but I am generally not a very self-confident person. Uh, I'm a bit of an introvert that is required to be extroverted in various aspects of my life. I'm not much of one who uh, exercises self-confidence. But boy, am I self-confident when I'm angry. I know I'm right, and I know you're wrong. And not only will you know you're wrong, you will know how right I am. And I can promise you, brothers and sisters, most likely in every single instance where I think that way, I am very quickly humiliated in my anger because I am shown just how wrong I am in my motives. Anger makes us delusional and unreasonable. And if we remain in this state of madness, we will only spiral further down in our descent. Outside of Jesus' sermon, Scripture has plenty of warnings against our anger. So I am going to loosen the fire hydrant that is the Bible. You don't have to write all these down. If you are quick at taking notes, uh, let me encourage you to write these down. But here we go. Psalm 37, verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15, 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Look, y'all want to pile up some glory on yourself? Well, the way to do it is to overlook offenses that will be done against you. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Proverbs 29, 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 33, for pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, one of the first verses that I memorized as a Christian. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Have the scriptures convinced you yet of the dangers of your anger? Since the scriptures are full of warnings against our anger, we have to wonder and ask the question, what then is that the heart of our anger? Why are we angry? Why are we aroused to anger? What is at the root of our anger? Well, a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, we spent some time considering what James had to say in, uh, regarding conflict in the church. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the same thing there regarding conflict applies to the heart of our anger. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, James says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James asked the very simple question, why do you fight? And he gives us a very simple and straightforward answer. 
You fight because your desires are at battle within you. You want something, but you don't get it. Might not exactly be uh, the type of modern and sophisticated answer that we have uh, grown accustomed to receive in our modern and sophisticated age, but James is straightforward. He cuts right through, and he's driving home that whatever controls your heart will control your behaviors. Where false beliefs and cravings rule, our perceptions become twisted, and we react accordingly. Greedy, grasping hearts generate anger and conflict. Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he said, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Many of us, in our outbursts of anger, uh, we're probably uh, prone to say something like, well, I didn't mean to say that. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say that. Jesus disagrees with your assessment of what you meant to say. Jesus clearly says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, that out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth will speak. So you may think that I wish this did not come out because now I'm embarrassed and I clearly see that I've hurt you. I wish I could take it back. No, 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 no. Jesus says, look, out of the abundance of your heart, you have unscrewed the lid and you poured that over onto the face of the person who has offended you. The point being, our hearts drive our actions. And our behaviors and responses, they expose what truly controls our heart. The scriptures give us, an ex uh, give us example after example of what James is talking about in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Passions at war within us, coveting and not having, and then murdering. So again, here's more of the fire hydrant of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. Cain killed his brother Abel because Cain was angry that God would not accept his sacrifices on his own terms. So brother rises against brother. Genesis chapter 27. Here we see again another brother rising against another brother. Esau was so furious with his conniving younger brother Jacob, who stole both Esau's birthright and his father's blessing, that he plotted to exact revenge against his brother by killing him. Oftentimes we view Jacob to be one of the heroes, right? Because he's one of the patriarchs. Jacob was a very morally flawed character. He, he's not exactly the type of role model that you want your children to uh, be modeled after. And their mother, Rebecca, rightly described Esau as furious. Genesis chapter 34 after their sister, Dinah, was attacked and humiliated, and I'm using very soft language when I say attacked and humiliated, the enraged brothers Levi and Simeon slaughtered all the men of the city in their wrath. Uh, if you're interested in military history, you'll be really interested at the militant tactics that the brothers employed if you read Genesis 34. Genesis chapter 37, again, Here's another story of brothers rising against brothers. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father Jacob loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated Joseph. His brothers plotted to kill him, but they settled on the less violent option of throwing him into a pit and then selling him as a slave for profit. Genesis 37 to 50, a 
phenomenal story to consider in the history of the redemption that we have received. Esther chapter 1. The anger of King Xerxes burned within him against his queen, Queen Vashti, when she refused to appear before him according to his command. He was so angry that he deposed his queen and then settled for a harem. If you continue to read Esther, you'll see that uh, God was sovereignly orchestrating the right queen to be in power just at the right time. Esther chapter 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not show him the honor and respect he craved on numerous occasions, he became so angry that he schemed a plan of genocide against all of the Jewish people. Spoiler alert, the very thing that Haman wished uh, Mordecai would die upon, he himself sees his bitter end. 1 Samuel chapter 18, King Saul hated David, and the Bible describes him in very plain language. He was jealous, he was angry, he was fearful. Jonah chapter 4, we all love the story of Jonah and the whale. But in Jonah chapter 4, when the people of Nineveh repented of their evil ways and God relented of his punishment against them, the text literally says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Brothers and sisters, when my children recognize and understand that they've done something wrong and they respond appropriately by seeking forgiveness and confessing, that's news to celebrate. When the entire city of Nineveh repents of their evil ways against the Lord, Jonah was exceedingly displeased. He was angry, and he threw a temper tantrum. I'll give you one final example. Consider the older brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. The story of the prodigal son is often remembered as a story of uh, you know, God's... Uh, gentleness, his grace, his love, his mercy as demonstrated in the father, a character that is oftentimes forgotten in the parable is the older brother. When the hardworking older brother received word that his prodigal younger brother had come home after squandering his father's wealth, and his father responded by celebrating and killing the fattened calf to throw a feast, how did the older brother respond? The text says he was so angry, he refused to go in to join the festivities. He was enraged and embittered that he, the hardworking, faithful, and obedient older brother, would be treated this way. Now, why do I bring out all these examples? The reason, do you see how in each of these individuals, they were responding to what they perceived as a wrong or injustice? Their passions were at war within. Their hearts were ruled by false beliefs and self-centered cravings. Even when their anger was righteously aroused, I would think if your sister is harmed and humiliated, you will righteously be angered. Even their righteous anger degenerated into sinful anger. In these examples, we see reactions of sinful anger we can add our own examples to these examples. So how can we examine the heart of our anger? How can we discern between what is righteous and sinful anger? You will become angry. Something or someone will provoke you to respond in anger. The question that we will face is, will we react 
with righteous anger or will we react by sin, or with sinful anger? So, let me, as one of your pastors, help you by giving you a few questions that you can ask yourself. Ask yourself these following questions. I believe they should be on the screen. <clears throat> but if not, I'll repeat them so that you can write them down. Here are a few questions you can ask to discern your own heart. Number one, do you get angry about the right things? Do you get angry about the right things? Anger addresses perceived wrong. So, did you perceive rightly? Is it possible that you misunderstood the facts? Did you mis misinterpret what was said or done? Do you get angry about the right things? Number two, do you express anger in the right way? It's possible to see the wrong in another's life accurately, and yet to express anger in a sinful way. So how do you express your anger? Are you the type to erupt in angry words or actions, throwing things or slamming doors? Or do you treat your offender with the silent treatment and passive aggressions? Anger is a close cousin to resentment and bitterness. Number three, how long does your anger last? When anger lasts a day, a week, a decade, a lifetime, something has gone wrong. Now, you may be thinking, Pastor Chris, you do not know what has been done to me. You don't know how they have wronged me. You don't know what they did that was so wrong and heinous. And you're probably right. I might not know. But your pastors and the members of this church are committed to walk with you. I, I, in love, I would encourage you to be cautious. When anger settles into bitterness and hostility then you know that you are far outside the bounds of righteous anger, even if your anger was aroused righteously. Uh, number four, how controlled is your anger? Godly anger is emotion that is controlled by purpose imposed on us by the Lord. It is consistent with those fruits of the Spirit, like self-control, gentleness, and patience. Ungodly anger is emotion controlled by the impulses of our own hearts and runs out of control. It is harsh and it is easily provoked. Number five, is your anger grace-giving or is it judgmental? In your anger, do you seek to imitate God by giving grace to others or do you seek to usurp God's authority by standing in judgment over others? In our anger, we can very easily deceive ourselves to think that we are appropriately usurping God's authority. Is your anger controlled by a godly agenda, by confidence in God's sovereignty, by submission to his purposes? Or is your anger unpredictable, abusive, or brooding? Finally, what motivates your anger? This is probably the question that we need to consider and ponder the longest. What motivates your anger? Ask yourself, what do I really want? What do I really believe? 
My anger comes out of my heart. It is not caused by the situation. When I am angry, what rules my heart? What is controlling me to react in the way that I am reacting or about to react? Sinful anger is unabashedly myopic and self-centered. It's focused on me. It's focused on me as the chief subject, the chief ruler of my kingdom. How dare you transgress against me? So, what are the desires within that when frustrated, obstructed, or unfulfilled, drive you to anger? Now, if we understand the various warnings against our anger, and we understand the heart of our anger, what then is the way out of our anger? What is the way out of our anger? The path of anger has left damage and destruction in its wake. So is there any other path that I can take? The path of anger is a well-worn path. But can I veer from this path onto another? Brothers and sisters, in my own experience, but more importantly, according to the scriptures, the way out of our anger is not through clever techniques, anger management plans, or verbal mantras that we mouth to ourselves in order to calm down. The way out is to look up. The way to put our earthly ways to rest is by setting our minds to the things above. The way out of our angry ways is to look at what the Lord has done with his anger against our sin. I'm going to start with Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul, he says these words. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are, that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Church, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you not only have received new life, a new life that you've been raised to walk in, you have received new sight. The Spirit of God has enabled you to now see things that you once could not see, namely your own sin and blindness, but also you are now have been enabled to see the goodness of God for you. You have been enabled by the Spirit of God to see the goodness of Christ for you. This new spiritual sight enables you to see that by faith alone, you have been united to Christ. Your life, Christian, is hidden with Christ in God. Do you know what that means? That means that even though you face great dangers and temptations in this world, because your life is hidden with Christ, your life is safe. Christ is not haphazard with his possessions. Your Lord will not lose that which he possesses. He will not misplace your life as we do our keys. 
your life is safely hidden with Christ in God. And not only is it uh, hidden with Christ, verse 4, Christ himself is your life. Christ himself is our life. The good news for angry people like you and me is that anger has indeed been expressed. Just not our own anger. God's anger at sin was expressed. But it was done so for your well-being. Once and for all in the past, God set you free from ever experiencing his wrath against your sins. In steadfast love, he freely offered his innocent son to bear the wrath deserved by the guilty. God's anger punishes and destroys, giving our sin its due. But it was taken by Jesus, the beloved lamb, the savior of sinners, the son whom the Lord was well pleased. Because he loves us, he offers himself to bear the fire of anger. The way of our deliverance is his glory and our joy. God's loving anger expressed in a way that brings us blessing is the basis of life from the dead. It assures us of true forgiveness. Justification by faith and adoption as the children of God rest upon the form of love that the Bible would call substitutionary atonement. What we deserve, another bore, because he chose to love us. In this supreme act of self-giving love, we experience God's anger acting for us. In response to his anger acting for us, we confidently repent and believe. What does repenting and believing look like then? If you keep looking at Paul's words, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, uh, take some time this week to meditate upon Colossians chapter 3, verses uh, 5 through 10. Paul says, after verses 1 through 4, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its, uh, uh, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You know, when we look at the mirror every morning, we may physically still resemble like the same person that we looked five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. But inwardly, we are a completely different person. The old self has been crucified, never to be raised to life again. In Christ, we now have a new life. And by the Spirit, we now put on a new self. And this new self is ever being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The very creator who sent his own son for you. The very creator who says to angry people like you and me, 
I will indeed help you. But now you must put them all away, is what Paul says. But putting them away, humanly speaking, is impossible. So many of us have tried, and we keep faltering. We keep failing. We keep giving in to our anger. We need God's help. And brothers and sisters, we can rest in the fact that God has promised to help us. Dealing with sin is God's specialty. Giving grace to those who humbly seek him for help is his specialty. Giving rest to the weary is his specialty. It is God's specialty to give help to his children and to conform them finally and fully to the image of his son. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I do not have a 12-step anger management plan to give you, but I have encouragement from the scriptures to share with you if you are facing anger, if you are one who is angry, if you see anger ruling you. Brothers and sisters, look to Christ. Your way out of anger is to put on new sight and to see a greater object that is worthy of your greater affection, Jesus Christ. Look to Christ and repent of the evil desires that produce this troublesome and problematic angry behavior. Look to Christ and receive God's forgiving and enabling grace. Look to Jesus and confess your anger before God and before others, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Look to Jesus Christ and receive his promises. His check to you will never bounce. Rest in his provision of forgiving and transforming grace. Look to Jesus Christ and by faith in the spirit, according to God's word, take the steps that are necessary to replace your angry behavior with Christ-like words and actions that you are now enabled and able to do, not by your own strength, but by your new sight, by the greater object that is worthy of this sight. The way out of anger is not to master our minds, tongues, desires, and bodies, although that may be the desired outcome. But the way out of anger, the path out of our anger is by discovering a person. When we look upon Jesus Christ and find our lives hidden with Christ in God, then can we truly find a way out of the madness of our anger. Look to Christ. See him there. And there you will find your life. He himself who is our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news that you've given to us. Father, we thank you that you have given to us not only a way out of anger, but that you have given to us grace that will transform us so that we would repent of our sinful ways, our angry ways, and find in Christ forgiveness and transformation. God, we ask that you would help us now uh, to not only control our tongues and to control our desires, but Father, would you please help us to look upwards to Christ and find in him our lives hidden, safe forevermore. 
God, it is in Jesus' name that we pray, and it is in Jesus that we find our supreme delight and our desire. We ask and pray that you bless us now with your grace. Amen.